is Me, Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response and recovery. Over to you, Josh and Andrew. Hello and welcome back to Me, Myself and Disaster, the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus. Now, leadership is something that can make or break an organisation. It can also make or break an operation within disasters. But where do we actually learn our lessons about leadership? Can we learn about leadership and adversity? Or can we even learn about leadership and suffering? One individual has done just that, taking a situation head-on, staring in the eye mortality and learning some critical lessons about himself and his leadership style. Andrew, who's joining us on the show today? Josh, today on the show, we're speaking with Peter Baines, founder of the Hands Across the Water charity, which was established to take care of children who lost their family in the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami. Peter began his career in the New South Wales Police and was deployed to undertake forensic work following the Bali bombings and then to Thailand following the tsunami. He founded the charity in 2005 and has since had hundreds of kids living at the charity's homes. Peter was awarded with an Order of Australia medal in 2014 and joins us today to share his experience after the tsunami and lessons in leadership published in his new book, Leadership Matters. We'll be asking Peter about his journey and how a disaster changed his life with many leadership lessons along the way. Let's chat with Peter Baines here on Me, Myself and Disaster. Peter, it's great to have you with us today. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. It's good to uh, join you both. So, Peter, you started your career as a police officer in New South Wales, but your life changed significantly following those significant disasters overseas that we heard about in the introduction. Before we dive into your journey, if you think back to your career in the police, where did you see yourself in the future before all these disasters occurred? Yeah, I guess uh, by the time that uh, I went to Bali, it was uh, 2002 for the bombings and uh, by then, I'd already had a decade in the forensic services group, and uh, I came back to Sydney because I'd spent 10 years working in regional New South Wales in Tamworth as a crime scene investigator, travelling through, you know, that northwest region, investigating scenes of major crime, suspicious deaths and homicides and so forth. And and um, at the end of 2001, I got a uh, detective inspector's job back in Sydney, so I returned to Sydney and and uh, was part of the uh, Forensic Services Group Command. I was responsible for seven different uh, sections, uh, specialist areas in New South Wales, uh, in that, in in the Sydney region. And um, so, prior to the bombings, that was a job. And you know, but for them, um, you know, and then the work in Thailand and subsequent international deployments, I've, I, you know, I would have stayed in the police, uh, no doubt. Yeah, that's something I want to. Something we really want to hone in on today is really looking at your experiences because you've had some experiences that not not many normal human beings would have and, and, and go through in their life. And it's really, I guess, shaped you as a human being, but also some of the lessons that you've shared, you know, through your through your talks and through your book. And I think one of the first ones we really want to hone in on, something that is definitely on all Australians' minds, is the Bali bombings. And you just mentioned that then in terms of where that sat in your career. But can you take us through how you found yourself in Bali after the bombings and and what was your role over there and and what were you doing? 
Yeah, so uh, at the time I was um, uh, leading the a number of specialist areas within the Forensic Services Group of New South Wales and and uh, as an, a, a functional area of, uh, of our work was that if there was uh, multiple uh, multiple fatalities, we would, uh, we, from within our group, we were responsible for leading what's called disaster victim identification. So in different states, there's different areas that uh, do that work, but it's mostly within the forensic area. So... Uh, so after the after the bombings, I was um, I was asked by our command um, to head over there, and and I actually joined a deployment from Queensland, and uh, um, and I was uh, working in the command of of those on the ground, and the, the the response to Bali was divided in into three areas. There was the uh, criminal investigation into those who had. Uh, committed the criminal offence and the interviewing of witnesses and gathering mm. of evidence. And then there was the examination of the scene. So the uh, Paddy's Bar and Sari Club, there was a, a crime scene that had to be examined. And both of those were done um, in the main by the AFP. And uh, the, the AFP took uh, all of their forensic resources from Canberra and headed over and and then the third element was the identification of those who died, and that was basically left to uh, the state uh, forensic officers who were seconded to work uh, with the AFP. And, and that was my role, was uh, to head over, and I was part of that uh, leadership team uh, leading the uh, forensic specialists on the ground, uh, both the police, the dentists, the doctors, uh, biologists, in the identification and, and repatriation of those who died. So from, from what I understand, this was, was this one of your first international deployments uh, through your career? And, and, and if that was the, if that's the case, what's that like seeing that for the first time, like in, in terms of putting yourself in that environment, I would imagine it's very different to kind of going to a homicide uh, and being in that environment to then being in a, in a kind of a mass casualty space internationally, um, you know, a lot of media surrounding it, um, you know, heaps of attention from, from governments. Uh, and, and obviously we all know at that time there was a lot of political tension. What was that like for you as a, as a young investigator finding yourself in, in that environment for the, for the very first time? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was my first deployment. And, you know, joining New South Wales Police, it's uh, uh, highly unusual to do an international deployment. You know, yeah. like it, in, any international work is really done by uh, by the AFP. And, uh, you know, the only uh, police that are likely to do international work from the state agencies uh, are criminal investigators who have locked someone up and they've uh, absconded to a, another country and, and mm. you go over there to do an extradition. And uh, apart from uh, maybe attending an international training program, it's just not on the horizon that you'll do international deployments, you know. And and I guess the it wasn't so much a, 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 like a shock or, you know, something hugely different in the fact that it was overseas. What was different was the multi-jurisdictional response. And uh, uh, we'd never worked closely with any of the other states, nor the AFP. And, mm. uh, and Bali brought us together. And it was something that the work that we did, um, you know, certainly set us up for Thailand. But, 
you know, Bali was really unique in that there was uh, uh, there was continual threat uh, to the police that were on the ground, and and we were briefed that we weren't allowed to leave the hotel. Um, that there, you know, there'd been threats made uh, against because the Kartika Plaza Hotel where we we're staying uh, was, you know, close to a hundred percent capacity. Every other hotel was empty. You know, everyone left, but our hotel was full of cops and. And there was bomb threats to the hotel. There was threats against us because people didn't want us there. And, uh, you know, there was, uh, you know, activities that were taken where we were driving different ways to the hospital each day. We were, you know, the hospital was uh, as guarded by the military. And, you know, I remember um, flying home and uh, after my deployment there and, and we had a senior uh, biologist from one of the forensic labs who was on the plane. And, and as we were boarding, I said to her, Virginia, you just look exhausted. And she said, can I tell you, the week that I've been here, I don't think I've slept more than two hours at oh. a time. And she said it was for her, it was just the fear of where we were and the environment that we were in. And, you know, and this is like it's not like in the military where you that's what you sign up for. That's mm-hmm. what you're trained for. That's the environment you're going into. And, you know, you know, for Virginia, for example, you, you know, her work was to travel to a laboratory in Lincoln each day. You know, the thought yeah. of being deployed to a foreign country uh, which had been subject of uh, three bombings. There's uh, um, there was a Bali uh, there was a Sari club, there was Paddy Bar, but there was also uh, a, a device that was detonated out the front of the US embassy that didn't go off. And, and a lot of people don't know about that one. But, you know, that, that country and, and at the time, we weren't welcome and we mm. weren't wanted, you know. And I remember very clearly on uh, one of my first days there, I was, I was standing um, on the other side of the crater that uh, was out the front of the Sari club. And, you know, there had been an L300 Mitsubishi van, which had been full of explosives and detonated, and and that was what created all of the the carnage at uh, at the Sari Club. And and I was standing on the opposite side of this crater, and there was a a, a crime scene tape, which uh, uh, you know created the boundary. And there was a guy uh, who rode up uh, at quite deliberate uh, at speed on a on a motorbike. Uh, jumped off the bike and walked straight towards us. He had a helmet mm. on, he had jeans, he had a long shirt and a backpack on. And that's the description of the guy that walked into Paddy's bar and, uh, and and detonated the device that was strapped to his back. And and he walked straight towards us and he had the, the visor on his helmet down. It was tinted, you couldn't see his eyes. And, and you know, I stood there and, and went, holy shit, you know, is this guy about to... Uh, you know, set off a device and he stood there and uh, he looked, I looked at him, you know, and, and it seemed like, uh, uh, you know, this period of time where time stopped, he turned around, got on his bike and rode away. And, you know, we weren't wanted in Bali. We weren't uh, welcome there. And, uh, um, and, and it was such a contrast to uh, our time in, um, in Thailand. But, you know, t- to your question, the first deployment, it was, you know, to go there, I felt, um, uh, you know, incredibly honoured, mm. you know, and, and I've spoken about this at different times. And if you use a sporting analogy, if you're, you know, if you're involved in a sporting team and you train all year, you play all year and your team gets to the grand final, 
well, you want to play, right? Yeah. And this, and this was the biggest job for us. You know, I'd spent uh, however many years by that stage within the forensic services group. I'd done a science degree, I'd done my law degree. I'd, you know, this is where I was trained and I'd spent all my time working in this area. And now there was something that was on a global level, you know, it was bigger than anything I'd been involved in. And, of course, I wanted to go. And I felt yeah. honoured to go and felt privileged to be invited. And and so it was a, you know, in a strange way, it was a hugely rewarding and privileged experience. Yeah, just before we move on, I think it's probably one thing just to set the context is that, you know, this is your job. I mean, for some of us looking onto that, it might be quite grim. And, and in a sense, you kind of go, you know, how does – how does an individual work in that space on a day-to-day basis? But I mean, as you say, it's, it's something you train for. It's something, you know, that's your career and, and it's where you can, you can utilize your skills. But just before we move on to some of the other events, I'm really just kind of really keen to understand at that point in t- time in your life uh, as a, you know, first deployment, uh, you know, younger individual. And if you were now looking back to yourself and had the ability to talk to them, you know, what would, what would you say to that individual around how you could equip yourself to work in that environment, in, in that space at that point in time? Yeah, I, I'd absolutely um, say, you know, go to, um, uh, to go, take up the opportunity and, and um, you know, do your best and, uh, you know, get your hands dirty, get involved and, and, you know, do what you've been trained to do. Mm. And, you know, because you're there, you can make a difference to the, you know, the, our job was to identify and return bodies, you know, and I think it was, uh, um, you know, for those who had lost a loved one, what we were doing is we were providing answers. We were giving them the opportunity to, to bury, you know, their husband, their daughter, their their wife, whoever, you know, and um, so I think that was, it was something that uh, we did with, you know, huge respect and, yeah, for me, if I, I if I think about it, there's absolutely no hesitation in saying um, to go and uh, you know get involved as much as you can. And as grim as it sounds like, it's probably uh, almost I say a good experience being there because you learnt so much that see what for for your next steps. And and speaking of that, uh, two years later, the Boxing Day tsunami happened in Thailand in 2004, which was the third largest earthquake ever recorded. Uh, and it struck off the northern tip of Sumatra. Josh and I have covered this on previous podcasts, but that travelled 800 k's an hour. It killed 250,000 people across Indonesia, Sri Lanka, Thailand and neighbouring countries. And you spent your whole career training to help and the Bali um, bombing set you up for this. What was it like to be called up to assist again in Thailand this time? Yeah, I was, uh, on, the, I was on holidays on the south coast of New South Wales when with my family and with friends and other families and there was a whole group of us and and I think like a lot of people I first learnt about it with um, the news break on the TV during the cricket to say something had happened and and uh, um, you know we gathered around the news uh, that night all of the parents and and it's such a clear memory for me um, the kids were all outside playing and all the parents were standing around the the, the TV and we're in the lounge room of this house we're in and my wife was on the other side of the, the lounge room and all the parents were standing watching and, and just seeing the scale of uh, of what was happening in Thailand grow and and I looked across at her and uh, we both um, uh, like our eyes met and without saying um, without a word needing to be said 
we both knew that I would then be called upon to go to Thailand. And, um, you know, it was, uh, uh, it was only hours later that I got a phone call from work and they said, you know, your holidays are finished, come back to work and, you know, you're heading to Thailand. And, um, um, you know, I was on, on the second deployment because the first deployment was filled with those who were in a couple of hours drive of Canberra and, uh, I was well outside of that, so I was on the second deployment and, and there within you know, probably a week or so of the event. And that was your first trip to Thailand, as I understand. What sort of what was your focus over there and, and how were you part of this, this coordinated effort to, to help with the recovery? Yeah, I'd never been to Thailand and uh, so, you know, first time I arrive and it's it's all for this. And, and my role uh, over there was as both as the Australian DVI commander, so leading the Australian Disaster Victim Identification Team. And that team was made up of, uh, of specialist police, doctors, dentists and biologists. And I was also um, through different uh, deployments leading uh, the international uh, teams at one of the, the sites as well as leading the Australian team. and. You know, really the role um, was there was to look after our people, uh, make decisions around the direction that the, the, the operation was going and, uh, and support those to do their job, which mm. is really the job of any leader. I, I think it's really um, – funny is not the right word, but I find it really interesting the way you speak about your role. Uh, you, I mean, you speak about it very clinically – um, and, 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 and as we've already spoken about just before, you know, it's because you're trained, it's your career, it's, it's, it's your job, mm. but, but I, I get a sense that, and, and from Andrew and I have, have been to Thailand and have, have covered stories in that space around the tsunami and, and speaking to people that were there on the day, this was definitely something that was out of the normal. Uh, and, and as some people may know on this, on, on, on this podcast, or those listening that you know, the culture of the, of the Thai people is to, to take their, their dead to the temple and, and, and to bury them. And, and, you know, we're talking about sheer scale of numbers. Can, can you just help the listeners kind of understand why this in a sense was something out of the normal? Can you kind of set the scene around what you walked into when you walked into, you know, some of those temples where, where people had been bringing the bodies to, to be identified and, and worked on? Yeah, sure. I think, you know, those who have worked um, in the area uh, that I certainly did uh, in policing or ambos and fireys and so forth, um, if you've smelt, and this, you know, is a bit uh, gross, but it is what it is. If you smelt a decomposing body of a, of a human, it's, it's not a smell you forget. Mm. And uh, I, I flew from uh, from. Uh, from Phuket up to uh, Takuapa in a, in a police heli and landed on the ground. And before we landed, I uh, could smell the death mm-hmm. and uh, got out of the heli and walked, um, you know, probably about 500 metres uh, to a temple called Wat Yen Yao and uh, uh, beautiful temple. And I walked in through the gates and and covering the ground of the uh, of the temple was a decomposing bodies of three and a half thousand people, and that when I say the bodies were arriving by a uh, by the truckload, it's not a metaphor. Mm. It's that's how they were arriving. You know, they were they were uh, trucks that were turning up with uh, uh, 30, 40 bodies at a time, and they were being unloaded and they were being placed on the ground. 
Now, there was no body bags, there was no ice, there was no refrigeration. Um, they were just placed on the, on the ground. And two things advanced the decom- decomposition of a body, heat and water. Mm. Many of the bodies had come out of water and all of them were in the heat. Yeah. And there was this advanced state of decomposition that was occurring. And, you know, it's, it's a site that a uh, um, uh, few people can, uh, can imagine. And that's a good thing. Mm. You don't need to appreciate what we experience. You don't need yeah. to appreciate, um, you know, the body fluids that were that were breaking down and and you know running through. You don't need to 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 imagine uh, your loved one in a state of decomposition. But that was what we were confronted with, and and that was the nature of it, you know. And uh, um, and the bodies kept coming. Is there, like, is there anything you can do to prepare yourself in that space? We've got a lot of people who do work in, in the disaster field and, and as first responders, and, and many can probably tell their own story around, you know, the first time they, they've shown up to a scene, uh, obviously not of that scale, but, but you know, in terms of a death. Um, but f- for mm. you, is there is there anything you can do or is that something where you just go, you know what, this is a growth moment. You can't prepare yourself for this. You're learning the lessons as you go through this experience in itself. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's certainly, um, you know, I recall uh, there was a, uh, there was a a specialist sent over from one of the agencies and, um, um, and uh, she was checking in to the hotel. And uh, as she was checking in, I was at reception and uh, she was crying. And I said, you know, you've just arrived, what's wrong? Mm. And she said, I've never seen a body before and I don't want to be here. And and I just thought it was uh, of gross negligence that she was deployed. And, uh, and I said, don't worry. I said, uh, there's no need to come up. We'll organise a flight and you can go home tomorrow. And that's what we did. And mm. it wasn't a place for people who hadn't been exposed to, to death because the job was too big. The challenge was too big uh, to be, you know, dealing with those kind of emotions for the first time. Yeah. You know, it was absolutely, it was a learning experience. It was a learning ground. But, you, you know, like it was it was too much. It was too big and too important, uh, you know, to be overcome by mm. your own emotions. And, uh, you know, I think, and that was the, the wise thing was just, to send experienced people who could focus on the job rather than the the nature of the of the the task if that makes sense yeah yeah for you as a leader how like obviously in that space you could identify that individual was just not going to cope and you can be quite proactive but for those people who stayed and those people that worked you know shoulder to shoulder with you through that experience mm. How do you support them through through something like that? Even though they have seen it all, you go, they're equipped mentally to, to deal with this space. I, I dare say, again, it's something as a leader that, you know, it, it's it's not something you take lightly around how you lead a group of people through that experience. Oh, absolutely. You know, just because we've been exposed to to death before doesn't mean that you, you're coping well over there because, you know, normally, uh, you know, you go to a, uh, a scene, whether it's a, a multiple homicide or so forth, you, you, you know, your deployment is measured in hours or days, uh, and then you go home to your family, and uh, mm. you know. But here, you were there for a month at a time, and wow. uh, uh, you know, you're waking up each day, 
getting dressed to go and do the same job that you've done the day before, knowing that this will continue. And, uh, you know, the, and you'd see it um, in, in guys that, you know, are working at the site where um, we, we, we had a, a trolley where we'd lo- leave our phones and so forth. And, and you'd see it when guys would just uh, take their time and walk over and pick up their phone and go and sit in the shade under a tree and call home. And it was that connection with home, and and I think um, you know the role of of a leader, and what I saw my job there to do was to support those in the job that they were doing the best I could. And um, you know, we, we on one of the the light, later tours, we were travelling from uh, from Takuapa down to uh, Phuket town um, where they'd moved our accommodation and. So it was probably a, a two and a bit hour drive each day, each way, and uh, we would finish uh, at the site. And there was only a, a few of us uh, from the Australian team working up at this site, and and we would leave, and then I'd drive, um, um, and we'd come back along to the to the beach, and uh, where there'd been the destruction and a few of these small bars. And when I say bar, it was a bamboo shack that had opened mm. up, and no customers, and we'd call in there, uh, we'd uh, uh, buy a few beers, we'd strip off our police uniform, jump in the ocean and, um, you know, share some time together. And, you know, in some type of uh, uh, metaphorical and almost literal sense, you were washing the day off you. Yeah. You know, you had a few beers, you had a few laughs, you you dealt with stuff the way Australians do and, uh um, not forgetting the significance, not forgetting the importance, but also not getting too caught up in it and getting too wound up and too strung out that we couldn't have a beer, we couldn't have a laugh, we couldn't enjoy ourselves. Because when you're there for a month and then you go home and you come back for another month, you've got to, you've got to be able to manage it. you know. And it's yeah. one of the things that I looked at in picking the teams, in selecting the teams that I would take with me it wasn't about the most qualified or the best technical provider, you know, because it's we all were competent. We were all able to do our forensic job, you know, otherwise you weren't in the area. And, but I, what I looked for was who had the personality that I wanted mm. to hang out with under really shitty conditions for yeah. a month at a time, you know, because if there's a bloke in the office who's an outstanding performer but he's a knob to be around, well, when you're in this environment, yeah. you know, when you're away from family, when people get to a, uh, you know, can get to a pretty low position, you you want a good team. And so for me, it was selecting people who I who I thought um, could uh, could cope with uh, not the technical challenges. It was everything outside of that. I think just describe Josh high performer does not to be around. <laughs> no, <just that. laughs> you can, you ask, can use that as a quote. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask about like your um, and coming back to Australia for those breaks. Like I know certainly in Australia when we deploy to disasters here, there's that post depression or post um, deployment blues. You kind and I certainly mm, get it when you come mm. home. It's I'm still in that sort of high paced tempo, and I can't stop thinking about the disaster I've been to. H- how do you cope with that when you get back for those short stints, and then after there's all over we'll come to shortly but how did you get through that sort of I mean what after a life-changing event how did you cope with the post-traumatic stress and the and the thoughts of what you saw over there yeah it's really interesting I remember um uh, quite vividly uh after probably my first tour uh 
uh, walking through the shops, doing the grocery shopping, and and just feeling so like no one knew where I was two days ago, you know, yeah. and what I was surrounded by. And here I am back in the supermarket and no one gives a shit about where I was two days ago, you know. Yeah. And and I think, you know, the, the exposure to this kind of stuff, it uh, changes your perspective and not necessarily in a good way. And, uh, you know, the story I share around that is we lived in Sydney. Between tours, there was this huge storm and, um, you know, it was quite violent and Two doors up from our house was uh, um, a friend's house of my daughter, and and we went out. All the neighbours gathered out at this, as the storm started to ease, but it was still raining because this big branch had gone through the the roof of this three story house, and all the neighbours and 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 the family was away, so there was no risk of anyone being injured. But the the neighbours and my wife, everyone's freaking out, going, oh, you know, there's going to be damage to a, you know, the roof and all the rest, and. I'm going, don't worry, you know, that's what insurance is for. And yeah. and the pitch of the roof meant no one could climb up there and, and who's climbing up and on a three-story roof anyway. And I go, don't worry. And they're going, it's going to ruin the carpet. It's going to do this, all the school works in there. I said, don't worry. That's what insurance is for. And my wife turned to me and she said, just because there's not thousands of people dead doesn't mean that this doesn't matter. Mm. And I went, you know, fair enough. And, you know, for me, the biggest thing I was exposed to, I was quite literally in the middle of – uh, a week uh, back and then I was about to go again where I knew I was back amongst the thousands of of, of bodies and my, my job was to do that. But for, for this family and for everyone standing out on the street that day, the biggest thing that had happened was a branch had gone through Angie's roof. And, uh, you know, so there is that real, um, you know, challenge of coming back and it being so different. And then you speak, Andrew, about, you know, that post-appointment blues. And and it's hugely significant. It was one of the things that I talked to our teams about coming home is to prepare for coming home. And, uh, you know, because you come home and a couple of things can happen. And certainly in the cops, there'll be people who uh, won't get to go to that and they'll be jealous and they won't want to hear any of your stories because they didn't get picked. You know, so not everyone wants to know what you've been a part of. And, and part of it is preparing and acknowledging and this goes back to something we were talking about earlier. It's about acknowledging to the significance and honour of being invited to go, you know. And and I look at my career, and um, you know what Bali, uh, like I went as the sole New South Wales police officer on that deployment, and what that meant for the rest of my career was then, you know, Thailand. It was then Interpol. It was you know living in France. It was working with the UN, which led me into Japan and, and Saudi Arabia and all of this stuff never would have happened, I'd suggest, if it wasn't for Bali. And and so, you know, it was that case of really appreciating what the opportunity you're in because it was the biggest thing I'd ever be involved in. I just want to hone in because I think there's this really interesting kind of thread here and, and it's something that's in my mind. I was just, I've actually just been reading a book about an individual uh, who lost his son in a, in a drowning accident. Uh, the, 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 the child was three years old and it, and it really kind of follows his story around, in a sense, finding himself through that suffering. Mm. And, and I know you've talked about this before. I've seen interviews where you've talked about this, you know, this whole notion of, of you know, at the end of the day, life is kind of suffering. Like there is suffering in life and, and that, in, in a sense, creates the beauty for us sometimes. 
Mm. And, and I and I get a sense is almost that that notion for you that through that story about coming home in terms of how you kind of move past that that suffering and kind of can go on with your life in terms of you, you know what I mean like you don't let it affect you, and the individual in the book talks a lot about you know for many years almost feeling guilty to be happy like there was this there was almost this guilt to go you know well, River's dead how how can I feel how can I feel happy or how can I be enjoying mm. this moment. And I almost get the same sense there was a little bit that for you in terms of on a different scale, you know, coming home and going, you know, it is okay to be happy. Like that, 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 that's not my life. I still need to honor it and, and, and in a sense um, deal with it. But how did you move past that, that when you were coming backwards and forwards as well? Yeah, I don't know, uh, Josh, that um, it was certainly something that I was conscious of. I think it was a case that, uh, um, you know, going over, um, as, as I keep saying, it was a privilege and I felt, you know, quite honoured to be asked to lead the Australian team and, um, you know, something I hold uh, quite dear. And then I came home and, you know, you're back into life at home as a dad with three kids and a house and and then knowing that um, you're going back again, you know, and, uh, and I guess those who in the military or or so forth or you know people who work in the mining industry fly in fly out and you know it's uh, home for a month it's gone for a month and and uh, you know it's that separation from family and uh, you know and there was a point where um, you know leading up to it you know my wife said I'd already mentally gone is that uh, she said you you know you may as well have flown three to four days ago because you're you're quite absent now because yeah. quite clearly you're thinking about what where you're going what you're doing what the next appointment's going to be like and you've mentally yeah. you 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 flew out three days or four days ago you know and uh, yeah. but I guess it's uh, you know how can you not be uh, thinking about that when it was so significant. I almost get a sense, and this is something that I think a lot of people probably know your name or, or, or in, a, in a sense, link your name to is in, in terms of um, in terms of your charity work of Hands Across the Water. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I almost get a sense that this was a was a moment of healing for you. Like, is, was this was this for you in terms of establishing that charity and that work? Was that in a sense you kind of working through and, and was that almost like a healing process to go, you know what, I even though I can't affect or change what's happened to some of these individuals, I can still, in a sense, have some good in the world and, and influence the, the ongoing outcome? Makes a nice story, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. <laughs> but it's not, it's not the case. And, uh, you know, you're not the first uh, to make that connection or, you mm. know, assume that that might be the case. And, you know, and I answer that by saying that, um, you know, very early on, um, I got my, my entire career, I'd seen uh, the victims uh, left behind. And, uh, you know, certainly this was on a different scale. But, you know, I, I met these kids in a tent um, who were living, uh, who'd all lost their families. And there was 32 of these kids, only a small number of, of those, that, uh, you know, families that were affected. And, and working with um, a colleague from the UK uh, at the time, and and I came back to Australia, and you know my personal life was in the toilet. You know I'd separated from my wife in between tours. I was, you know, uh, emotionally, physically, mentally, you know, exhausted, and uh, I was pretty much at rock bottom. And and uh, Jill rang me and she said, you know, those kids we met, and I said, yeah. She said, well, they need a home, and she said, you know, do you want to 
you know, work with me and build build a home for these kids. And, and I said, yeah, okay. And and it wasn't, it didn't feel like my calling. It didn't feel like mm. something that, you know, I had to do. It didn't feel like it was repairing, you know, some type of damage or debt or anything. Yeah. It just made sense, you yeah. know. And, and the reason it made sense was because I'd been invited by this guy called Matt Church, who is, um, you know, a... Uh, uh, such a premier speaker and trainer uh, of those who deliver keynote presentations in Australia. I'd met him in between tours and he asked me if I wanted to share my stories on the corporate circuit. And uh, without a word of a lie, he gave me his business card and I walked away from lunch and threw it in the bin and I thought, (laughs) this guy's full of shit. (laughs) You know, I thought, I'm in the cops. What could I possibly have to offer? And, 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 and I walked away and didn't give it a thought. And then when I met the kids living in the tent, I thought if half of what Matt said is true, this is how I can raise the money. And uh, so I got back on the mat and I said, do you reckon what you said is true? And he said, well, clearly you've got a story, just whether you can tell it. And uh, so I started speaking and the speaking fees was how I raised the money. Mm. And, and, and it just felt like the right thing to do, that I had this ability uh, to raise money. And why would you not then do that to support these kids? So it didn't feel like therapy. It didn't feel like, you know, uh, a calling or, you know, this epiphany or anything like that. And, yeah. um, you know, no doubt, though, Josh, in the in the 18 years that I've been doing it, that it's you know, changed everything about my life and I'm so incredibly, you know, better for starting the charity and, you know, no doubt it has been, you know, healing for me on a lot of levels, but it wasn't something that I consciously, you know, looked for or thought of when I started. I think a lot of reading through your book, Leadership Matters, there's there's plenty of lessons and you talk through this process and a lot about um, starting the charity and what's come from that. And one thing I really took away I found very interesting was your approach to um, combating the risk head on. So a lot of risks in starting a charity, mm. um, a lot of work overseas, there's a lot of risks in that. But a lot of the time um, in, in government and big organisations, the process is trying to eliminate the risk and just get mm. rid of it altogether. But you speak about combating the risk. Take us through mm. what, that, what that means. Yeah, it's one of the things that I think you know, kind of um, – you know, it pisses me off the way that we 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 seek to avoid or eliminate risk. You know, whether we're bringing up kids, whether it's you know community groups, whether it's business or government, and we see uh, risk is a bad thing, and uh, then we try to eliminate it. But you know, like you look at kids and uh, as an example, and you go, how do they learn? How do they develop the muscle memory of decision making and and assessing risk and and dealing with challenge if they don't confront it? Mm-hmm. You know, in business, how do we? You know, we write so much policy and procedure so we can predict the outcome. But you know, here's the contradiction. The more policy and the more procedure we put in place, the more opportunities we create for non-compliance because there's mm. more steps, right? Yeah. And you know, where do we expect? Where do we expect those within our business, our teams? Where do we expect them to have the confidence and the ability and to to make decisions when it's unknown? If we've taken all that away and we just say, follow this procedure, follow this, you know, there's a policy for this, and and this was the thing. 
you know, within many within your organisation or the, those that you that listen to this will be undertaking scenario training, simulation training, and 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 that's that was part of my job to to run those things when I was in the police, right? Now, if I ran prior to prior to Bali, if I ran a DVI exercise, exercise, and I said we're going to have three hundred people who will die as a result of this. You know, what's the level of buy-in from those involved in the exercise? Because if it's not foreseeable, well, it's hard for them to engage, right? But, you know, after Bali, you go, okay, well, shit, we had this uh, terrorism, you know, exercise or terrorism event. It was 200 bodies recovered. And I remember sitting in the departure lounge of uh, Denpasar Airport with Greg Hoff from Victoria Police uh, waiting to fly home. And I said to, to Hoffy, I said, mate, that's the biggest job we'll ever be involved in. He said, too right, Bainsey. Two years later, we're both in, in, in Thailand where, you know, instead of 200 bodies, there was five and a half thousand. And, and for me, like I talk about, that's the moment when you turn up to a temple and got three and a half thousand bodies, that's where leadership matters. Yeah. That's where you need the leaders who aren't follow, following a policy. They, they aren't looking at precedent. They aren't looking at the, pulling a procedures manual out because you know what? All of this is so beyond anything that we've done. And the reason that they can make the decisions and they can lead the organisation forward is because they faced risk before. They've made decisions. They've got it wrong. They've owned it and they've made change. You know, we, we had to send one of Australia's most senior police officers home from Bali because he was so fearful of making the wrong decision, so he made none. And we would have been better as an agency if he made the wrong decision than making none at all. Mm. You know, so we, I think we, we create cultures where either through, um, you know, risk avoidance or, you know, the, 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 the reward of getting, you know, taking on risk isn't there or it's punitive in nature or whatever, that people go, well, why would I bother of taking this risk? Well, let's avoid the risk. But then where's the muscle memory? Where's the true leadership? Because there'll come a time when someone's not there to help you avoid it. And yeah, so I get I, I get a bit fired up about it, but uh, <laughs> I, because I just I just don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think it, I think you raise a really good point, and it's funny that it, it, it's a thread that we've seen through a range of high performing leaders in our industry is that ability to challenge the status quo. Like Craig Fugate, who was the foreign administrator for FEMA, you know, head advisor to the Obama, Obama administration, talks about this notion of, you know, why are we exercising to to practice government decision-centric um, decision-making? Like, yeah, we got it right um, and we all pat each other on the back. And it's like, no, you should be patting each other on the back when you got it wrong and you learnt mm. something and you challenged your mm. thinking. And, and Mark Crosweller, the former uh, head of, of Emergency Management Australia, used to talk about this as well, is that we need to be planning for the unimaginable. We need to start thinking yeah. in that space to prepare ourselves. So from your perspective, like what can we be doing as leaders with our teams to create this culture? What, what are some of those practical steps that we can be doing? I think it's a, it's a case of ensuring that they have the, the, the understanding, the confidence that if they make a decision and they get it wrong, um, they'll be forgiven. You know, if they've acted with good integrity, good intent, they've consulted where they can and they get it wrong, that that's okay. You know, yeah. and as you say, it's almost a good thing that, they, that they've tried. And, uh, um, you know, like our, our innovators, our creators, our artists, our pioneers – 
they're the ones who are doing something that hasn't been done before. And that's what we need to celebrate because, you know, true leadership is not about following a path. It's, mm. it's setting the path, you know, and, and that's where we need to. And I see this with the work I do in Thailand where, you know, the, 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 the risk of getting something wrong far outweighs the reward and yeah. therefore it's risk avoidance, yeah. you know, and, and there's a real punitive nature within their schooling and education system of getting stuff wrong. Like I'll, I'll, I'll spend time with, um, you know, some of our new Thai staff, for example, and if it's if I'm talking to two of them, like I am here with you guys, and one will keep, um, you know, deferring to to have it translated because they don't have the confidence to speak in English. Then once they get to know me, next thing you know, they're speaking to me in English, and I go, "Where did that come from?" You know, <laughs> and and it's because they've been taught if you get it wrong, you'll be punished. Yeah, you know, and I think that's what we've got to create within our teams and our environments and our schools and and all the rest is is we celebrate the risk takers. Yeah, it's something you talk a lot about. Like, is 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 this is there a sense here of imposter syndrome? Is there an intersection between imposter syndrome? Like you were talking just before around the inability of an individual to make a decision. And I get a sense that, you know, there's fear and then, and there's some complexity around that, but I dare say one of the major factors of that would have been imposter syndrome. Am I actually equipped to make this decision? Do I, do I actually even have the ability to do it? Where do you see the intersection in that space between leadership and fearless leadership uh, and imposter syndrome? And I know you've talked about it in terms of your career that you've you've, mm, you've had to mm. overcome that. What are some mm. tips and tricks for our listeners uh, if they're kind of having the same feelings and thoughts and, and making sure that they don't get caught out with it? Yeah, I think there's a difference between, um, you know, imposter syndrome and then uh, not having the courage to, mm. to, to take um, you know, difficult decisions on and so forth. I think, I think the imposter syndrome is is you know, am I good enough? Um, you know, have I got something of value here to say? Um, you know, but doing it anyway. And yeah. I think it's that question that sits in our back that you know keeps your ego in check. And and you know, I think uh, we've all got it at different times where we go, you know, should I really be here? Am mm. I entitled to be on this podcast sharing views? And you go, yeah. well. Well, I'm here. Let's share them anyway, you know. And, <laughs> yeah. and I think the, you know, I think that difference with, um, you know, with the courageous leaders is 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 those who, as I say, have the courage to turn up. Those who who have the courage to to make difficult decisions, to live with the outcome, and own the mistakes, you know. Yeah. And I, I think sometimes we can overcomplicate this whole discussion and think that, you know, these, you know, great leaders are, are something so different than the rest of us. Mm -hmm. And I actually think, you know, the, the job of a leader is to help those that they're supporting do their job, yeah. you know, and it, it, it's not a lot, whole lot more complicated than that. And I think, you know, I, I reflect on the roles that uh, I've done in, you know, these different international crisis um, situations. And I think the best thing I did was walk around, drive around, be present with our team and say, how can I help, mm. you know, and, and yeah. give them uh, whatever they needed, whether it be the resources, whether it was, you know, additional manpower, whether it was funding to, to help them do their job. And I don't think it's a whole lot more complicated than that. Sounds easy. 
And I, oh, I think and speaking of easy, I want to kind of kind of think about some of the leaders in about presence there. We've had um, I think examples in your mm. book of Scott Morrison being in Hawaii or Christine Nixon during major the bushfires and and I wanted to ask you what what impact does presence have of a leadership uh, or a leader in, in one of these environments in a disaster? What's what's that impact? Do you think? I think the significance of our presence is really undervalued by by leaders. I think that. Uh, there's two things that I'd suggest come from being present. It, one, it says that you care, and two, it says you understand the challenges that have been faced. Now, you talk about, like many that might be um, listening to this podcast, and you talk about, think about a, a disaster or crisis response or, or so forth, and, and you'll have a command centre, right? And you'll bring together, and I've sat in many of these, uh, you know, within the Sydney Police Centre where we, we pulled all of the, uh, you know, representatives from the different agencies who, who come together from, you know, from fire, from ambos, from government, from, you know, the electricity supply. You bring all of these people and all from different agencies who are the liaison points back to their teams on the ground, right? And that's where the command centre is. Now, in that command centre, you've got, you know, all the, the TVs, you've got all of the feed that's coming in, you've got all of this data, you've got all the resources on hand. Now, is there a, uh, is there a place where you can be better informed than that command centre? And I'd suggest to you there is not. I'd suggest to you you're getting the most accurate and up-to-date and timely information from all of the different agencies by being in that command centre. So you're probably the best place to be informed is there. But if you're not in the field, if you're not out where the disaster is happening, where it's occurring, you know, the victims of the fires, the floods, and or if they don't see you, they don't think that you care. They don't think that mm. you understand. And this was the this was the difference between um, our premier of New South Wales, uh, Gladys, who just did such an amazing job through the fires and through COVID, because she was present. Now compare that to Morrison. Morrison buggers off to Hawaii while the east coast of Australia is on fire. And, you know, why he thought it was a good time to go, well, who knows? I think it shows the arrogance of the man. And then he then he decided to deny he was there. But ask yourself this, while he's away, is he, uh, is he briefed? Is he informed of what's going on? Of course he is. You know, a man of, in holding that position, he's going to be as updated there as if he's updated in the command centre at, uh, um, you know, in one of the fire centres. But here's the thing, by him not being present, it demonstrates to people that he doesn't care and he doesn't understand. We saw that when he turned up too late and did too little by going to the fire-affected areas and trying to shake hands with people who did not want a bar of him. You know, and I think that's the that's such the it's such an important role of leaders, and we can look through, you know, so many case studies of um, you know crisis situations, disaster situations, and you look at the leaders, those who did well and those who 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 did not, and I'd suggest to you it's not because of uh, a demonstration of skill, it's a deployment of resources, because normally they're so far up the chain that it's the responsibility of others. But because yeah. they're seen as the, the leader, you know, and, you know, when I talk about Christine Nixon and, you know, such a highly intelligent, well-educated person, you know, you don't become the first female police commissioner in Australia by chance. 
She's no one's fool, make no mistake about that. But she was heavily criticised in the public inquiry in the Royal Commission because of her lack of presence. But ask yourself this from a leadership and contextual point of view. If she's in that command centre that that day that a lot of the 170 people, uh, 173 people lost their lives, if she's in the command centre, does it make a difference to those who, who lost their lives? Does it make a difference to the way that the operation unfolded? And I'd suggest to you, no. Does it make a difference whether she's there or not to the progress of the fire? And again, I'd suggest to you no. So why was she so heavily criticised? Because she wasn't present. As leaders, we don't have to have all the answers. Mm. We don't have to bring about change. Our communities accept that. But what they expect is that you'll be present. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's in a sense funny because, you know, uh, uh, for me, the embodiment of that was when uh, when was when Scott Morrison came out and said, well, I, I'm, I don't hold a hose. And that for it's me was that embodiment. Yeah, it's not yeah. my job to hold a hose. I thought that's yeah. that just embodies, um, I guess, in a sense, how he didn't understand what presence meant in that moment in his leadership. Well, it, showed, um, it showed the arrogance of the man and it uh, – you know, it's probably the only job that he didn't give himself. You know, he gave himself plenty of jobs in Parliament, <laughs> didn't he? So clearly hose holder was not one of them. Minister <laughs> for hose holder, that'd be good. <laughs> um, before we wrap up, because we are we are running out of time and, uh, and we know you're an extremely busy individual, I think one thing that Andrew and I found fascinating, and I think it's probably one of these skill sets that you've developed through you know, your career is this notion of a limitless mindset. And I think um, really want to kind of unpack how have you kind of utilised that to kind of stay mature, uh, to stay in a sense motivated and to continue to achieve on, on the trajectory that you've achieved? Yeah, I think that um, we allow too many other people to impose their limitations on us. You know, if you sit, uh, you, you talk about your dreams or the things that you want to do and, and they're, they're out there, there's a good chance there'll be someone who will sit around and tell you why it won't work, what's wrong with it, why you're not good enough. They'll impose their limitations on you. And mm. I think, uh, you know, the best way to find our limitations is to find them ourselves and to challenge them. You know, and I lead these bike rides through Thailand and, you know, I've had 35 of them. And, and what I see, are there, there's people who turn up and they have this uh, – uh, a belief either through uh, their own, um, you know, thinking or what's been more likely what they've been told by others of what they're, they're capable of. And then I see these people who you look at and you'd say there was no way you can do this because that's the assumption you make and then they mm. go and do it, you know, and, and how it fundamentally reshapes their thinking because they've just decided not to be limited by the the thoughts of, of, of others. And sometimes, you know, these limitations are put on us by others just because they don't want you to achieve beyond what yeah. they've done, you know. And I think the, the thing for me with um, – you know, the creation of hands and, you know, where the, where that's gone is it's just, um, you know, continuing to move forward. It's not letting, you know, it's it's results being more important than the excuses and, and it's not letting, um, you know, perfect be the evil of good. Yeah. You know, because if we wait until we've got all of the answers to all of the possible questions, 
well, then we'll never start. And I think, you know, that goes back to that decision-making in response to crisis and disaster. And, you know, like if you wait until everything's perfect, well, you're going to miss the opportunity. And it's the same in the commercial marketplace. You know, if there's a gap in the marketplace and you wait until you've got all of the answers, someone will beat you to it. Yeah. You know, and I, I think it's just the case of just continuing to move forward, continuing to, 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 to have progress, you know, and, and, and clarity comes with action. The more you mm-hmm. do, the clearer you'll become. And, um, you know, next thing you're, you're well down the road of where you would have been if you hadn't have started. Yeah. Now, if people want to help out and support Hands Across the Water, how can they, how can they do that? Yeah, just head to uh, uh, handsacrossthewater.org.au and, you know, I think one of the things really different for Hands is rather than in us seeking donations or so forth, we, we really look to offer uh, meaningful experiences and return value back to people, and that's been mm. the success for us. And, and we lead these bike rides in Thailand, and March next year we got a leader's ride for five days. And, you know, it's it's a, a, it's no uh, exaggeration to say that these things are they're life-changing experiences. And, you know, we've got a rider who's been riding us with, for, for five years, and he says, uh, I fundraise for the kids, but I ride for myself. You know, and I think it's yeah. a, coming out of COVID. It's one of the things is that you, you know it's uh, the challenge of our time is to find a journey worthy of our heart and soul. And I yep. think it's you know this is the important opportunities and work that we create through hands. Sounds excellent. The book is Leadership Matters, and you can check it out at your favorite bookstore on the link, and we'll put it on the website at me myselfdisaster.com. We've also included more information about Peter and Hands Across the Water. Peter Baines, it's been great chatting with you and hearing all about your experiences. Thanks for joining us here on Me, Myself and Disaster. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Josh. It's been a great, uh, great chat. That's all we have time for on the show today. Join us again next time as we talk to more interesting guests from across the world about their experiences during disasters. We'll catch you then. Thanks for listening to Me, Myself and Disaster. Subscribe today at memyselfdisaster.com.